absorb what I think is an inappropriate policy and then and thus allow China the space to do things that are more rational. Mm. Okay, well, it's going to be interesting to see how this pans out over the coming uh, weeks or so. Thank you very much, Brock. That's Brock Silvers, Chief Investments Officer at Kyan Capital. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Um, around the markets this morning, down in Australia, stocks up a little bit now. The uh, the SX200 up about 0.2%. However, stocks taking a big tumble in Japan. The Nikkei 225 is down 2% at the moment. In South Korea, the Cosby is down about a quarter of a percent. Uh, futures markets indicating the Hang Seng may be going to open about 20 or 30 points lower later on this morning. Uh, Brent crude oil is sliding once again. It's down about 1% right now in Asian trading at $63.95 a barrel. Gold also slipping a bit as well at $1,738 an ounce. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Do please stay tuned on Radio 3 to back chats with Hugh Chiverton and Mike Rouse coming up just after the news. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy, cool with one or two light rain patches this morning. Maximum temperature of about 20 degrees during the day. And then the outlook is for sunny intervals with temperatures rising in the middle and latter parts of this week. It's 16 degrees right now, 67% relative humidity. Coming up to 8.31 and a half, here's Samantha Butler with the Half Hour News. An infectious disease expert says Hong Kong could remove its anti-epidemic measures once it achieves herd immunity to the coronavirus. University of Hong Kong professor Benjamin Cowling said this could be achieved with around 70% of the population being inoculated with what he called a highly effective vaccine. If we want to go back to normal, it's going to rely on all of us to get vaccinated. We all know that the risk in the past year hasn't been very high. That's because our success of our success in dealing with COVID. But we can't keep all those measures in place. They're really, really difficult to keep in place. They're expensive to keep in place. We've got to look for a better solution, which is mass vaccination, high coverage of highly effective vaccines, herd immunity, and then we can go back to normal and we don't need to worry about COVID anymore. So far, more than 350,000 people have received their first COVID vaccine dose. Mainland officials have appealed to the public to have a coronavirus vaccination amid signs that people are reluctant to get a jab. Here's the BBC's Michael Bristow. Health experts in Beijing say many Chinese people mistakenly think there's no need to be inoculated because the country has largely brought the pandemic under control. But they point out that people are not immune and imported cases, particularly of new variants, could trigger fresh waves. China has administered 75 million doses, but that's only about five for every 100 people, far less than nations with the most advanced vaccination programmes. Beijing hopes to inoculate 560 million people, 40% of its population, by the end of June. City officials in Miami Beach in Florida are debating whether to extend a 72-hour state of emergency after thousands of tourists descended for the annual spring break holiday, risking the spread of coronavirus. An emergency curfew was put in place on Saturday, prompting mixed views among the revelers. I think it is a good idea, even though it's fun out here, like we want to be out here and have fun. I think it's a good idea for everyone to be like, you know, I guess in their own places. Yeah. I think it's a good idea. That way everybody has fun. No one's doing anything. People are just out here enjoying the beach and, you know, it's a good vibe. But if they want to shut it down at 8 o'clock, people will go somewhere else and take their money somewhere else and it is what it is. Florida remains a coronavirus hotspot in the U.S. with nearly 2 million infections since the pandemic began. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Hugh Tiverton, your co-host this Monday morning, Mike Rouse. Mike, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Two topics today, more on COVID-19 in the first part of the programme, and then we'll be talking about the Sino-US meeting in Anchorage last week. How is the vaccination programme going uh, in Hong Kong? What, are the latest, uh, what should we make of the latest low-ish infection figures? And uh, in particular, what about uh, travel and different vaccines? After nine, we're going to be discussing the impact of that first top-level face-to-face meeting between China and the US since Joe Biden was sworn in as president. If you've got any thoughts, questions or comments, leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, or email us, backchat at rthk.hk, or call us, and our number is 233-88266. That's 233-88266. Joining us for the... What's what's the matter, Mike? You're you're pointing at something. Yes, you mentioned the... Sino-US meeting, and the headline on our thing says Myanmar. Oh, yes, okay. Yeah, all right. <laughs> You'll have to ignore that. All okay. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, do you want to put your mask on, Mike? Sorry, yes. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, uh, just so we're joining the first part of the program before nine by Sarah Borwine, who's a, who's a Canadian physician uh, who trained at the uh, London School of Hygiene and uh, Tropical Medicine. Quite a few uh, emails, as ever, are on uh, aspects uh, of this. Mike, you were saying that you've you've booked your your. I'm going on Wednesday to St Paul's Hospital in Causeway Bay for the first shot. So something we didn't really touch on, I think I might have mentioned it in the introduction on, on Friday, was um, I had the impression that expatriates were more likely to get uh, uh, vaccinated than uh, local people. And I don't know if that's true. That's, that's just a kind of anecdotal the, observation. I'm getting a similar impression, and I think they're going overwhelmingly so why? for Biontech. Mm-hmm. I think it's connected with travel. Mm-hmm. You, you're looking at the UK, you're looking at the US, you're looking at Europe. So expats Australia. are more likely to, to travel and more, feel more need to travel, so they might... And they're all suspecting... Might be first it, in the queue. This, so there are some of us who actually remember having vaccine passports in the 1950s and 1960s when you, you had, to be, uh, had to carry something. Was it yellow fever or something? Uh, I can't remember the other one, but we, we all had those shots... And we carried around a bit of cardboard saying we'd had them. And although the WHO doesn't seem keen on that and other people are saying no, I think we're going to see them within this year. Mm. And they're going to support bubbles, whether it's Australia, New Zealand, Singapore or whatever. Um, and people want to travel. Mm. We're getting claustrophobic. Mm. And for heaven's sake, can I go to Macau? Please, can I go to Macau? <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm go- actually going to go to... Tayo on Lantau Island at the end of the week. And look at Macau across the bay or something. Yeah. <laughs> something. At least I'll have been on a ferry. <laughs> <laughs> OK, uh, some uh, emails uh, with, with a variety of subjects, maybe some of which we'll, we'll, we'll deal with uh, Dr. Bullwine in a moment. Um, Paisley says, I have found uh, Professor Benjamin Cowling to be a voice of logic, intelligence and objectivity during the COVID epidemic. I was a little surprised, therefore, to hear his uh, interview on Hong Kong Today earlier this morning. That's today. Uh, When asked by Mike Weeks how he would advise government to encourage locals to get vaccinated, Professor Cowling said he preferred to see what government would propose before giving his own recommendations. Perhaps you can push him on the subject if you get him live on the show. Not today, but but another time. But it's an interesting question, yeah, what if there should be some kind of uh, incentives or or, uh, some way to uh, encourage people to to, uh, get uh, vaccinated. I think there was some mention of carrots and sticks Mm -hmm. and preferring carrots 
So making it easier to travel is, a, is an obvious carrot. I don't think the government's going to wheel out any sticks. I think they're going to leave that to the employers, which will be interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. So you want a hotel licence? OK. Uh, are all your staff vaccinated? Uh, you want your restaurant licence renewed? Uh, how's the vaccination programme going? Things like this. There's you know, sticks, though, aren't they, really? Anyway, but, yeah, yeah, but they're sticks against the employer okay. and leaving it to the employer to apply sticks mm -hmm. to the staff. OK, yeah. Okay, Douglas says uh, on uh, PCR testing, South Korea has stopped requirements for a negative test after 14 days because people are no longer contagious as they've isolated for 14 days. But due to the sensitivity of the PCR test, cycle count used, they can still show signs of being positive. Positive doesn't equal contagious. Um, why doesn't Hong Kong look at this approach instead of 21 days in isolation? Why are local cases required to isolate for 14 days? But travellers, still 21 days. No science behind these measures. We have a year's data on testing after arrival, 8 days, 12 days, 18 days, etc. Yes, some people might be positive after 20 days, but this would be such a low percentage. It's, a tip it's typical. Everything is a nail when you only have a hammer. That is uh, from Douglas. Dr. Borwine, good morning to you. Good morning. Can you ex explain about this, the, the significance of, of the PCR test? And what, what about the, the, the length of the, uh, of the quarantine? Have we learned anything yet? Is 21 days necessary? Well, those are excellent questions. Uh, and there's some, there's some different situations in which, which may be being confused in the question. So somebody who is sick with COVID-19 may continue to test positive for quite some time, even when they're no longer contagious. That's quite true. But the issue with the 21-day quarantine has really been an effort to keep out the more contagious uh, variants of concern that have developed. And I think the Department of Health actually released some data over the weekend that of the people in quarantine, 400 or so cases that have been picked up in quarantine since December, 4% were picked up beyond 14 days. So if you're really trying to keep out those variants, then yes, more than 14 days may be necessary, unfortunately, much as I hate to say it, because I do think it's very onerous. Um, but one of the issues seems to be that the, some of those new variants may be more transmissible because they're transmissible for longer. So that's part of the issue. Okay, uh, because there, there are specific... There are different rules, aren't there, for different different uh, different places, and the places where those new variants have been found: Brazil, Ireland, South Africa, and the United Kingdom. They're classified as extremely high risk, aren't they? So there are extra requirements. You can't have been in those countries for 21 days uh, at all uh, before, even before you get to Hong Kong. Yes, and that's probably going to become less and less relevant because they've spread around quite a bit. We managed. To, we have managed to keep them out so far, but most places haven't. So I think that requirement is going to become kind of irrelevant after a while. Irrelevant or more general? Well, I think it means that they're going to probably not release the 21-day quarantine anytime soon. I think that's what that means. And might extend it. Have to apply to more places. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> well, it applies to everybody at the moment who's coming in to Hong Kong. 21 day quarantine applies to all, all incoming travelers. Mm. Uh, okay. Um, uh, an email, this is from uh, Mike, who says, Your last speakers on Friday rambled on for five minutes. Tell us to have, tell us. Or, 
tell us to have confidence in all the vaccines and to rush to take it so we could get back to normal. One thing that would scream loudest, in my opinion, and that is the most obvious, replace emergency use with safe and effective. Duh. I'm waiting on the scientific, not the political, anecdotal, emotional evidence. That is uh, from uh, Mike. Do, do, do you agree with Mike that we should be understanding um, the figures so far as uh, uh, relating to emergency use? Uh, rather than saying with confidence that the vaccines are safe and effective? Well, I, I think we have an incredible amount of data, particularly on some of the vaccines, to know that they are safe and effective. We've never had so much data so quickly because of the massive campaigns that have gone on in the UK and the US and because of the, the data out of Israel, which used only one vaccine. And so I think we have a lot of data, at least on some vaccines. I, I, I think that it is true that we should be using language around the vaccines being safe and effective. We seem to have created this idea that somehow they're inherently unsafe and that we're asking people to do something inherently unsafe in order to get back to normal, which is absolutely not true. It actually looks like the vaccines we have are incredibly safe. In, but, in general, vaccines are just virus protection software. Right. And but they, but they Doctor, the, all the statements from the various regulatory agencies do use the word emergency use yeah well, that's just that, that that's true and that's just the process that you go through when you when you uh when you approve a vaccine in this way they the companies then have to make a, make submissions in order to have it become uh regular use but that will happen it's almost it's certainly going to happen well it would certainly be a lot better from a pr point of view if that could happen early because People are raising doubts still about yeah, AstraZeneca in Europe, although people point to context and say, well, listen, you know, 10 people a day get blood clots. If only five, yeah. five a day are getting blood clots after the vaccine in a similar population size, that's actually not, not mean, it doesn't mean it's more dangerous. Well, exactly. I think you have to think of if you were to take 10 million people and inject a half cc of water into their arms, that over the next two months, 14,000 of them would die, and 9,000 would get cancer, and 4,000 would get heart attacks, and some of those would appear immediately after you injected water into their arms. So you really have to be careful with these associations. And I think that has to do with how we assess. Always when you approve a new vaccine, there's a post-marketing phase, and that's kind of what we're in, uh, where you look for really rare side effects. And I think two things to remember are... One, that they always happen pretty quickly. People ask me, well, am I going to have side effects years later? That's just not, that is just so unlikely. It's actually never really happened. They, the side effects show up relatively quickly and at most within a month or two. So we already have a lot of data to know that even rare side effects are unlikely. And we have to be careful with vaccine side effects are always, assessed by some variant of something called the VAERS system, where the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, where everything that happens after a vaccine is reported. And over time, you sift through the data and you figure out, is it related to the vaccine or not? And almost all the time, it turns out not to be, but that's right. how you figure it out. Because you want to be people playing safe. But what about the suggestion that if you uh, react badly to the first shot, that you shouldn't have the same second one with the same vaccine? Well, I, I think it depends what the bad reaction is. Like if you have a 
anaphylactic allergic reaction, then yes, you probably shouldn't have the same one the next time. That's true. But if you have a, many of the reactions that have happened in Hong Kong have been fainting spells, which are often induced by panic. Yes. So, <laughs> put, put, I put my hand up for that yeah. one, yes. <laughs> yeah. And so I think, you know, that is not a contraindication to having the next vaccine with the same, uh, same vaccine. So I think it really depends what it is. Could you have uh, one, the first one of, of one vaccine and the second one of a different vaccine? What's the medical view of that? It's being studied and it has promised as being an effective method, but we don't know yet because there really are no studies on that at the moment. Okay. But and it actually it might be a good idea. We don't know yet. All right. And our number is 233 I think we've got a mic on the line. Mike, good morning to you. Good morning. I want to take back, Mike. I, I sent you an email last Yeah, I, re- I read it out. Yeah. I want to take some of that back. I have two sons that are physicians, and they're both clinicians, and they're both in one's ICU and the other's emergency. So they're, uh, they're right in the Bronx. They're right, uh, um, you know, right on top of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so I ask them the questions, and I go, why are we getting such different views? And, um, uh, you know, kind of like controversies. And he just goes, uh, Dad, we had 20 doctors discuss this this morning, and half of them were clinicians and half of them were academics. And if you're an academic, you're going to have a different, you're going to have a different viewpoint than a clinician and if you're a clinician like like we are and a clinician in a teaching hospital we kind of get both sides and so i hear a lot of the discussion and a lot of the discussion what you're saying and you're both right but here's a point that i thought i took away from the conversation last thursday and he said dad wednesday i admitted three patients that had covid in the spring took the jab in the summer, and now they've got COVID again. And uh, the good news is, is they're not critical. The bad news is, is they're serious enough to be in the hospital. Is this going Hang to- on, Mike. Sorry, sorry. You said they took the jab in the summer? They took the jab in the, during the fall, during this, this fall. So, uh, you know, they took the jab a few months ago. So they took the, they, they had COVID in the summer. I mean, last spring. Okay. And I go, wait a second, because my son also contracted COVID, and he also had the jab. And he goes, hey, you know, hey, I had, I admitted, I said, does this happen? All the, he says, I admitted three yesterday. Mm-hmm. So this is just the idea. So I asked him, I said, what, what do you think? And he goes, yeah, you know, I think it's going to be around for another two or three years. Really? Sorry, they they were admitted, sorry, they, they were admitted for... Because of for COVID, for, for COVID, not because That's they had something else, but they also had no, the they, they, tested. They, they all had, they all three had COVID, so they had this. They had COVID, they had the jab, and then they they got COVID again, but less seriously. Uh, he said, "Not critical." Right. He said, "He said, and, and he said we're so." Then I started talking about therapeutics, and he just goes, "Dad." There's no silver bullet. Yes, that's been tested. That's been tested. Basically, therapeutics, we treat symptoms. If a patient has inflammation, then we treat the inflammation. If they have infection, we, have, we treat the infection. If they have a cytokine storm, that's what we're treating. But, um, you know... Uh, okay, Dr. Bowen, do you want to comment? Um, yes. I, the 
so those are anecdotal reports, and I, I, I don't can't comment on those cases except to say that we didn't even start vaccination until December, and that it takes six to eight weeks to be fully protected from vaccination. So you're always going to see people develop COVID within the first two shots or even shortly after the second before they're fully protected. Uh, we just saw it with, I think, the Pakistani prime minister got COVID two days after getting his shot, but the shot had done nothing yet. So, and there's also going to be people who have immune compromise, for example, where they may not react properly to the vaccine and may not be immune. So I don't know what those cases are, but what we have seen in many countries, the UK just published data on it, Israel's got fantastic data on it, that when you vaccinate people, the cases come down tremendously and you really almost entirely prevent critical disease and death. Okay. Are, you my, my, are you a clinician or are you an expert? I'm a clinician. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Mike, many thanks for your, thanks for your call. Uh, number 233-88266. Magnus uh, says, uh, referring to Professor Cowling last week, Professor Cowling mentioned the loopholes that let us down at the border. Correct, of course, but he failed to answer my question Regatherings in private homes. This is one of the most risky settings and has been entirely ignored by the Hong Kong authorities. In stark contrast to every other successful country, an enormous loophole. This had implications on undermining the 6pm dine-in ban as it simply displaced gatherings to private homes. These loopholes have meant that we've spent four months dealing with the very small outbreak that started in November. Comments, please. Um, uh, Dr. Bowen, any need to uh, ban uh, gatherings in private homes? What do you think? I don't think at this point there is. You know, look, I have tremendous respect for the public health officials here. I think this is a very difficult and thankless job, and we have to give them some credit for having managed to control COVID to the extent they have in a city as crowded and with as large an elderly population without ever having a citywide lockdown. Uh, they, it's really difficult to get everything right. And it is true that people gathering in private homes has been a problem. But at the moment, we seem to have gotten this latest wave under control. I don't think we have to get more strict at the moment, but perhaps it's too, we shouldn't release the measures too quickly that we already have. Okay, we've got we've got a lot of emails, so some will have to will have to kind of uh, raise issues uh, unaddressed. Uh, Doug says uh, the listener who mentioned a ban on travellers from the UK. It should be understood this only applies to persons who are not permanent residents. Permanent residents have an absolute right to enter Hong Kong. Uh, Matthew says I have heard some people uh, who have to travel to the mainland for work want to only take the BioNTech vaccine and have concerns about Sinovac, but are unsure whether they will be allowed to enter the mainland if they don't take a mainland-developed and produced vaccine, which seems to be the CCP's policy. It would seem like quite a selfish, bombastic, middle-kingdom-style approach for the CCP to refuse to recognise vaccines offered by its own Hong Kong government and recognised as safe and effective by its friends at the WHO, the tool for forcing uptake of its own uh, non-WHO-approved vaccine. Uh, uh, Jimmy says, uh, good morning, Hong Kong. I received a fourth negative COVID test in Hong Kong on 2nd of March prior to my return to America. I'm scheduled to return home to Hong Kong on 19th of May. I'm 80 years old. I plan to receive the COVID inoculation prior to the end of April 2021. If I can complete my re regiment, hopefully the Pfizer, before returning to Hong Kong, will I need to, one, get another COVID test prior to boarding a flight from the US? A don't know. Does he have to have a test? I think the airlines now, yeah. if you haven't had you a do. test, you don't get on. Okay. Uh, will I need to quarantine again for another 21 days or on my arrival in Hong Kong? Yes, he will. 
Everyone, all, all arrivals have yeah. to quarantine for 21 days. Further, will the SAR government recognise my US CDC international inoculation record? Uh, no, because they don't recognise well, any. No, it'll rec- recognise it, it just won't have any you effect. What to do with it, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, that's from uh, Jim. Uh, okay, some... Good, good questions, Jim. Some uh, emails. Uh, Mr Pink says, Tell Mike that the vaccine documents we needed in the 1960s were for smallpox and cholera. That's right. I agree with him that it would be easy for governments to reintroduce a similar policy for COVID vaccine. That's from uh, uh, Mr Pink. Uh, Jay says, as I said earlier in the show, uh, many of us who travelled carried a card with our smallpox or polio or other vaccines to travel through different countries. And we would have thought nothing of having the vaccinations. But now we're all frightened by politics because nobody is telling the truth. Plus, we're going to have the added situation of politics and different countries not accepting other countries' vaccinations. And we're going to have the situation of how quickly will the virus mutate and the vaccines be invalid. And now we are finding you have to have vaccinations to go to work. And as for the hotel quarantine situation, this is a good job creation scheme for the fat cats who seem to be more expensive than the low-budget hotels. Uh, that is, to say, uh, from uh, Jay. Uh, Ronald says, only a high level of vaccinations can give us back our normal lives and reduce unemployment. Therefore, the government has to do whatever it takes to encourage people to get vaccinated. I urge the, I urge the government to immediately give privileges to vaccinated people. Examples, travel without quarantine uh, upon return to Hong Kong. If this doesn't work, dinner at restaurants only for vaccinated people. If this still doesn't work, public transport only for vaccinated people. Furthermore, everyone who refuses to get vaccinated shall bear the full cost for his medical treatment or quarantine in case he becomes uh, infective. Uh, that comes uh, from uh, Ronald. Dr Bowen, how would you encourage people? What carrots or sticks do you think would be appropriate uh, to encourage the wider population to get vaccinated? Well, I, I actually don't know the answer to that. I do mm. agree that we're probably going to have to do something to encourage people, but a lot of it has to do with engaging people's trust by being more transparent and more clear with the messaging. And, you know, you, many of your listeners have brought up many of the questions that we all have around who's going to accept what vaccines and the stuff we don't know yet about the vaccines that, that limit some of the carrots. For example, we don't know yet, at least for many of the vaccines, how well they prevent transmission. So whether or not you could get the vaccine and be protected from getting sick, but not protected from spreading it to others. We have some pretty good emerging data on the mRNA vaccines that they reduce that chance greatly, but we don't know it for all of the vaccines. And of course, that's going to impact on whether you can offer the carrot of quarantine-free travel, for example. So I, I think we have to be a little bit patient. It's going to shake out over the next couple of months what carrots we can give. Um, but other countries have done it in order to encourage particularly younger people who see less need to be vaccinated to get the vaccine. Uh, 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 yeah, I just had a comment on Facebook from Ted who says, where do we find the statistics that we're told during released by Hong Kong about positive COVID during quarantine? You mentioned those at the beginning, Dr. Borwine. Where, where yeah, is that? They, they, it's on the uh, Centre for Health Protection website. They, they were sent around to all of the doctors, uh, their little report on COVID-19 vaccination, and they, they did issue, they did have that, that uh, statement about the 4% testing positive after 14 days. Uh, okay, thanks. Um, let's see, a guy says, how to encourage vaccination? Uh, publicity, one negative, 
HMG allowed news media into ICUs and COVID-19 wards to talk to staff and recovering patients to demonstrate the awful reality of the situation. I think that's the British government he's talking about. Uh, SARG has not. A positive, the government, the public may be worried about the safe storage and distribution of the two vaccines available in Hong Kong. So again, the government should allow the media to cover this. Uh, three, positive, allow the media into vaccination centres to show with permission individuals getting happily vaccinated without collapsing. So this guy who says, P.S., I'm getting my first first Biontech jab uh, in four days' time. Uh, Paul says it seems that when someone dies after a vaccine, a huge effort is made to show that the vaccine is not responsible for that death, whereas uh, when someone either late in age or with an existing serious illness who also has COVID dies, every effort is made to record the death as COVID. If these efforts were the reverse, then this whole COVID-19 situation would appear totally different. How can we trust our medical overlords? I ask this because I'm beginning to suspect that most of them just love to be the gatekeepers of knowledge, saying what is expedient of them rather than actually telling us how it really is. Uh, that is from Paul. Uh, thanks for that. And uh, Jim says China stated they would allow people who had Chinese vaccine without a COVID PCR test, whereas if they have foreign vaccine, they have to produce a PCR test uh, also. Sarah uh, Bowen, uh, Dr. Bowen, many thanks for, for joining us this morning, answering those questions. Uh, Canadian physician who trained at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. We're going to be talking about uh, US-China relations, not Myanmar, in the second part of the uh, programme. If you've got thoughts on that, uh, please share them by calling us on 233-88266 or emailing backchat at rthk. HK. We look forward to uh, reading your comments. Although Horatio says on Facebook, please review your policy on having the same listeners calling in over and over again without substantial information to contribute. The weather, mainly cloudy, cool with a couple of light rain patches this morning. Uh, the readings at the moment, 16 Celsius, and the relative humidity is now at 67%. <laughs> Iran's supreme leader says his country will only return to its commitments under the International Nuclear Accord if the United States lifts all sanctions against Tehran. Ayatollah Ali Khamenei said past experience meant American promises had no credibility for Iran. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Back Chat this Monday morning with Mike Rouse and me, Hugh Chiverton, first one of the week. We were talking in the first part of the programme today about uh, aspects of uh, COVID and the vaccination programme uh, with uh, Dr. Borwine. Uh, we're going to be talking about US-China relations uh, in the wake of that uh, frosty, stormy, whatever uh, adjective you want to apply to it, meeting in uh, Alaska at the end of uh, last week. Uh, we want to hear from you, of course, as ever. You can just pick up the phone and call us, 233 88266. You can go to our Facebook page, Backchat and RTHK Radio 3, or you can email us. And our address is backchat at rthk.hk, and I will do our best to uh, read out your messages. Okay, let's just uh, go over some on uh, other uh, issues before we get to the uh, to the uh, main topic uh, today for the second part. Mike says, uh, I forgot one point he uh, called earlier, uh, everyone in the state signs a multi-page waiver that discuss all of the possible effects, which includes some scary unknown long-term effects. Read the warning. Signing it indicates you understand all the dangers and benefits. That's... Uh, from uh, Mike, Joe Average says, I have health issues. I'm worried about taking the vaccine. Can I get a special 
permit from my doctor to travel on aeroplanes and go to any other country, or am I a prisoner? Interesting question from uh, Joe Average. Um, John Kowloon says, Last October, the British government estimated that as many as a million Hong Kongers might move to the UK over the next five years under the B&O visa scheme, though it later suggested that a more reasonable figure was 320,000. Over the weekend, Britain announced that so far around 27,000 people had already applied. It remains too early to say what the eventual figure would will be but here's an interesting observation if a hong kong individual or family was intent on leaving hong kong i would have thought that one of the first things they would do is sell their hong kong home assuming they own their apartment particularly given the disproportionately high percentage of their net worth comprising this asset class yet despite the spectre of as much as four percent of hong kong's population emigrating to the uk the local residential market as measured by the centerline index has proved very resilient and has even resumed an uptrend in recent weeks this is even more remarkable when you consider this is happening against a backdrop of a recession and local unemployment jumping to a 17-year high of 7%. Does the strength of the Hong Kong residential market suggest that while a number of Hong Kongers may apply under the visa scheme, a much smaller number may eventually bite the bullet and leave Hong Kong? Or maybe they are selling their Hong Kong homes, but demand from mainlanders is providing support for the market. I don't know the answer, but the trend is certainly worth monitoring. That is from uh, John Kowloon. Um, on the issue of Sino-US relations, Bowen says, as US-China relations enter a new protracted era of mounting tension, Ronnie Tong is right to warn against Hong Kong's giving to the world the wrong perception that the opinion of Hong Kong people expressed through directly, directly elected legislators is no longer treasured or considered to be important, unquote. Since district councillors are also directly elected, it follows that the opinion of their electors should also be treasured. On that pre premise, proposals to eliminate or significantly reduce district council seats on the election committee are hard to justify, especially as the reasoning based on Article 97 of the Basic Law is extremely tenuous. First, nobody would call voters in LegCo elections or future open CE elections, if any, Bracket, or, quote, organs of political power for the simple reason that voters have no political power other than that to vote. District Council council's election committee members basically perform the same function they're having a particular percentage of the votes compared to voters in open elections cannot be a reason either because we know empirically that election committee elections being what they are these voters have far less say in determining who the winner is than voters in open elections second even if having a vote in the election committee does equate to one being an organ of political power why should it be legitimate for small private interest groups like among others the association of restaurant managers Federation of Hong Kong Aquaculture Associations, Shartin Arts Associations and Caritas Lokmo Integrated Vocational Training Centre to hold political power but not the popularly elected district councils. If it's about the number of seats on the committee, just the agriculture and fisheries and the religious sectors alone have more seats than all the district councils combined. No matter how you look at it, the argument is tenuous and insupportable. That is from... Bowen. Back to Sino-US uh, relations, we're joined now by David Zweig, Director of Transnational China Consulting Limited, Emeritus Professor in the Division of Social Sciences at the University of Science and Technology, and Joseph Gregory Mahoney, who's a Professor of Politics and Director of the International Graduate Programme uh, in Politics at the East China Normal University. Uh, David Zweig, good morning to you. Hello? Good morning, how Hi. are you? I'm very well, thank yes, you. Yeah. How, how, how do you think... Uh, how do you think? What's your assessment of uh, what transpired on uh, on Friday in uh, in Alaska? 
my initial assessment was that it went as I would have predicted, which was that the United States would articulate issues that the Chinese find highly aggravating, annoying, um, and that the Chinese would hit back, and that uh, then the meeting would not go well at all. Um, uh, Professor Mahoney and I had this discussion, so it's good that we're both uh, uh, back on again. Um, but then, you know, and, that, and I, you saw that, and so the first day, I mean, all the all the media uh, stories were unbelievable. Can you believe how terrible this meeting went? It was just disastrous, Whoa, incredible. Nobody does this in public. You know, you're usually uh, very friendly in public, and then you do the bargaining in private. But then there's an alternative view, which I've heard uh, articulated by some people, which says, look, both sides needed to take a really tough position. This has been a tough time. Remember, this is two, This is post, post-Trump era. Both sides, need, you know, the United States needs to say, look, we're going to be slightly different than Trump, but we're still good. We still care about you know, Taiwan, we still care about uh, cybersecurity, um, but for us, another big issue which we're bringing to the table is human rights. And then, uh, so they did it. And I think the American people would say that's okay, but it didn't go so well anyway. But nonetheless, that's okay. And on the Chinese side, once the Americans raise that, the Chinese have to, the Chinese side have to take a very tough position. But, you know, then the reports are that in private, the discussions went reasonably well, that they were able to talk about uh, uh, a lot of issues and even move forward to setting up a, a joint committee on climate change. Young Jetcher uh, called the meeting candid, constructive, and beneficial. Well, it didn't look candid, constructive, and beneficial if you only looked at the TV cameras on the first day. So my hope is that there was some progress, uh, and then both Maho- Professor Mahoney and I are right, which is in the beginning it's going to be just a disaster, but then they may sit down and find some really serious issues right. uh, to talk about and move forward. That sounds quite promising, David. I, I can't fathom some of this in the sense that at, behind it all there's references to security, and uh, I'm just puzzled as to what threat to the United States security China presents. Is there, Are they plotting a secret attack on Hawaii? I mean, that's been done before. Uh, what, what is the threat to the United States of, of China? Well, from an American perspective? Yeah. Or from my perspective? From, uh, from an American perspective, which do you want? The American perspective. <laughs> so from American perspective, sure. From the American perspective, it's that China threatens to close down the those sea lanes in the South China Sea, and that the United States has a responsibility to Australia, uh, to Japan. Uh, so much of the oil and energy and trade—I mean, fifty-five percent of Australia's trade comes up through the South China Sea. So, so that's one place. Second is that this administration, like the previous administration, particularly the end of it, uh, uh, felt feels responsible for protecting Taiwan. And so the, the tougher position that the United States China is taking come back to on the sea, Taiwan. Come back to the sea um, lane issue, because the people with the desperate to keep those sea lanes open and safe is China. Well, 
you ask me what the American position is, right? Yes. So, so, but China, yeah, no, and China feels that it needs to protect those sea lanes. And their argument would be that the reason that they built up the bases in the South China Sea is to be able to protect those sea lanes, but also to deny access to the American fleet uh, that might be coming to a Taiwan fight. So that's where they see uh, uh, the security issue. Also, the United States is standing right behind Japan. Very clear. Biden has said East China Sea, Diaoyu Islands, Senkaku, you know, we're there. And China has been ratcheting this up. So, I mean, you could argue that if the United States was willing to take a step back and just leave East, you know, East Asia, uh, that, you know, to China, that would be, uh, then there wouldn't be the threat. But, you know, the United States, uh, Britain, back in 1921, I was just thinking about this. I was walking past the building here in New York. Um, uh, the the, Secretary of State uh, during probably the Washington Conference in 1921 when the British tried to constrain Japanese armaments. You know, they didn't do it in 21, and in 33 they invaded China. So from an American perspective, they see China rising power, challenging if you don't get them to uh, uh, work within the international system or more within the international system and not challenging it the way that they are perceived to be challenging it, then it's a risk to the United States. All right. Professor Mahoney, good morning to you, and thanks for joining us once again. Uh, do, do you agree with David Zweig? Do you see some hope uh, beyond the uh, initial fireworks? There was that agreement, this uh, or this promise to work on uh, climate change. Um, yeah, How hopeful are you following that meeting? Well, I think we all have to keep our, our expectations uh, in check. Um, I was not surprised by the fireworks, um, nor was I surprised by the hyperbole in the, in the international press, uh, including the Chinese press, uh, about it, uh, or the, the, the Republican senators who were praising Biden uh, for taking such a tough line. And that's, that's really his core audience for that, that uh, Blinken's core audience for, for Biden in that performance. Uh, as well as uh, uh, others in the international uh, arena who are questioning what um, what America's true position is with, uh, vis-a-vis China at this point. Uh, I, so I, but I, I think it was a good thing. I think they, they did. I, I agree with David. They needed to clear the air. The, the posturing and the positioning was unavoidable. Uh, the reports, um, we haven't heard a lot about what they talked about. Um, we, we did hear some, you know, anecdotal reports that, when people were going to lunch, you know, they seemed a little more relaxed, and, and you know, it was business as usual in, in, in the world of, of high-level diplomacy. Um, I, I would uh, uh, agree largely with, with David, I, but, but with one caveat. I don't think, if we really look at it, that the United States is really concerned about uh, China being able to lock down the sea lanes. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of reports, if we, if we dig through things online and various sources, um, of, of the U.S. having extensive submarine operations in that area. And this is, uh, you know, one of the, the, the compelling reasons for China to try to project into that region is because the United States has the capacity to lock down that shipping lane, as well as uh, with, their, with their naval forces based out of Singapore. So... Uh, and then, of course, Taiwan is. is so, sorry, uh, when you say project, sorry, when uh, I, when you say project into that area, what does what does that mean? 
scenario, one case study out there that says that um, uh, the Dalyu and the and the South China Sea, these are really um, places where China is trying to create uh, breakout points so that their ships can get to open water before they're picked up by American subs. Um, and that's uh, one of the core concerns is that uh, the U.S. has missile boats under the ice, and there's no way to mitigate that threat if you can't get your your subs up the end of the old uh, Cold War game between the Soviet Union uh, and the United States. Um, and that, uh, you know, this was after uh, China created uh, these anti-aircraft uh, missile uh, capabilities, you know, the Assassin Mace uh, program that really accelerated after 99, um, that, that there was a, a sort of a subnet that was, that was brought in uh, close to the, the Chinese continental shelf. Um, and uh, it's just difficult for China to get its its uh, subs out, and um, and the, 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 the you know they've got the big uh, sub base there in Hainan. That's the southern breakout point. So uh, and, and Taiwan is part of that, of course. Um, but I think that that in terms of the, the the you know certainly China has no ambition to attack. Uh, I think the, the United States, but where the United States is vulnerable. And, and this is where I agree uh, with, with David, is because they have treaties where they have to come to the aid of Japan. They have to come to the aid of Taiwan. And so the United States can be drawn into a conflict that would then have security implications, much bigger security implications than just, uh, you, know, uh, you know, sort of a regional issue. Um, and then there's always the, the third wheel, um, and we, we used to refer to this, you know, that there was, uh, for a long time during the Cold War, of course, there was a, a dialectic between uh, North Korea and Taiwan. Whenever the United States would try to ratchet up pressure on China through Taiwan, uh, you know, we would see sort of a, a time lag, but, but a corresponding <laughs> ratcheting up of pressure from North Korea. That all began to change a little bit after uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, when the South, when South Korea began to take uh, a much more independent foreign policy, um, and then we also saw North Korea start to take a little bit more of an independent foreign policy, as well as Taiwan. But all of this now, uh, of course, is uh, is very muddled. Um, uh, that uh, uh, with Trump the, the trying to to directly have a bilateral engagement with uh, North Korea, that didn't work out. And, um, uh, and uh, um, you know, we, we see uh, North Korea moving back in the Chinese direction right. a little bit. Anyway, I don't want to right. talk in circles. Can, can I ask, um, can I ask is there there's a, seems to be underlying us a mindset issue. I mean, when you read some of the old American papers and uh, studies, the, the words that I find most striking are that China, uh, America feels that it lost China. And and there were sort of all, there were traitors in the state State Department. Otherwise, we wouldn't have lost China. So there seems to be a mindset issue behind here. Why why was China America's to have or lose? Mike, why why are you well, raising this was something a, that's like you know seventy years ago? I mean, the, the the where this could have some resonance might be the issue of, uh, you know, the hard-line Republican right, yes. where they might feel that, uh, I mean, they don't see it as having lost China, but they, they clearly see that there's a godless communism, and we heard this from Pompeo, um, uh, you know, that there's a godless communism that's taken over China, 
and is suppressing the people, and that that state of godless communism is building up uh, its power uh, stronger and stronger through all kinds of illicit uh, cybersecurity, ripoffs, military development, trade, that the unfair trade that they then use the surplus to expand their military and their economy. So if that's what you mean by um, sort of a mental... Yeah, I mean, you know, both sides have their hardliners, uh, and uh, I think that that's a, a core problem to all of this, which is where's the center, where's the middle ground? You know, and that's where a lot of us, I mean, would like to see try to find some middle ground. It seems to come back then to Taiwan, doesn't it? Why? Because you could ask the question, why does the U.S. have a treaty with Taiwan? Well, they don't anymore. It's expired. Um, uh, it, it ended when they signed diplomatic relations with, uh, uh, with China. But they do have a moral commitment. I mean, they have, a, they, they have the Taiwan Relations Act. Right, and legal so obligations when, to uh, sell t Taiwan arms, sufficient arms to defend itself. And to protect the people of Taiwan, right. but that's a domestic U.S. law. That's not an international commitment formally with Taiwan. That's not a diplomatic uh, agreement. That's an internal U.S. law uh, that then puts pressure on any government, any U.S. government, uh, if something happens, to then respond to the situation. P Professor Mahoney, I think I think last time we spoke, you you were you were saying you wouldn't expect. Uh, much from that meeting with the Quad, uh, and you wouldn't expect the Quad to be um, much of a player, I guess, in, in, in future relations. What, what, what did you think of the um, that meeting, uh, that assembly, shortly before the Sino-US summit? Um, uh, and what did we learn about the, the future role of the Quad? Will it be? Uh, will it? You know, how powerful will it be? What sort of significance will it, will it actually have? Uh, I think that uh, the meeting, um, more or less at least from what we've seen and, and, and uh, uh, reported on it, that uh, it, it pretty much confirms what I thought. Uh, you know, we had uh, a statement that was written, uh, I think we mentioned this before, the, the, the four leaders uh, published a, a piece together, a joint statement in the Washington Post. China was never mentioned in that piece. Subsequent to that, we know that South Korea was really, you know, uh, not uh, warm to the idea uh, there have been several overtures made to South Korea. Um, the only statement, that strong statement that we saw was uh, with Japan, and this was really simply reiterating um, an old uh, an old commitment. So, was, so although that got a lot of press right before uh, the meeting, it was really much ado about nothing new. Um, my sense is that um, that the relations with between China and, and India uh, have have uh, cooled down a little bit, and uh, I'm not quite sure where Australia is. There was a little bit of a, I think, some equivocation in some corners of Sydney um, in the last few months. There are certainly people in Australia who have more of a hard line, uh, but but my sense is that no one uh, no one really understands. I think even after the meetings that we saw, uh, what Biden's real foreign policy is uh, i described it uh, a little tongue-in-cheek uh, the other day i said you know the old the old chinese rendering was um the two-handed policy one hand extended and greeting the other pulled back in the fist but i said that, you know biden is kind of 
uh, proposed a three-handed Frankenstein. You, you, we want to uh, uh, cooperate, uh, compete, and contain. And uh, you know, I, I don't know how all of that really comes together um, and, and how, you know, uh, New Delhi or, uh, or uh, um, 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 uh, Canberra or, or Tokyo or Seoul, how they're supposed to see themselves and their own independent uh, interests fitting into this very complicated uh, and, and still uh, as yet very undetermined um, uh, foreign policy. The other, the other thing that, that I think is really confusing is the extent to which Biden uh, really has his own foreign policy at this point. It's, it's still early days, days and, and one has to, you know, uh, have their security reviews and, and, and figure out where they're going to go with it. But he's really hamstrung by these Senate Republicans um, who uh, are able to stymie his legislative agenda um, through filibuster or other acts. Uh, so he has to really keep playing uh, along a certain path um, that, that uh, I think that really unnerves a lot of people uh, in these other capitals, uh, particularly in the Quad, especially India and uh, Australia and Japan, of course, uh, India uh, chief among them. Uh, they have a lot more to lose in the Quad relationship than the U.S. does. And it's not clear that the U.S. can really benefit them as much as, you know, to, to, to offset the, the cost. You know, right. We look at the incredible so, amount of finance so, coming out of uh, finance in India. Go ahead. David Zweig, your, your thoughts on the, on the Quad? Uh, and the overall I shape, think, I guess, uh, of, uh, of Biden's uh, uh, policy towards China? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I guess I would disagree somewhat. I mean, there's still the United States is still coming up with its uh, 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 policy, its uh, review the uh, security review, but but I can see where you could have a policy of cooperation, uh, competition, uh, and containment. Uh, Sullivan called it something like stiff competition, um, uh, which is a kind of containment. But you know, you've got the, that the idea that uh, you know, like the Belt and Road, you, the United States has to be out there, uh, has to be engaging with uh, many of these countries. Uh, uh, cooperation, you've got global warming, you've got North Korea, uh, you've got, got other uh, uh, global pandemics, uh, you've got global issues, uh, and so it's important. I think we're all worried I mean, you know, that, that there wouldn't be that level of cooperation. And then I guess the point is the containment. The containment is much tougher. That's where the Quad then comes into that strategy, and that would be the, you know, the but, but again, as, as um, Professor Mahoney says, you know, the, if, if, if there's a war between India, uh, in the Himalayas, between India and China, the U.S. isn't going to do anything. Um, but I think the U.S. would do something for Australia, would do something for Japan. So at least for the states that they have a bilateral uh, defense treaty, a mutual defense treaty, those components of the Quad, I think, would, would still be important, but the, the four-state, I mean, you know, um, I just wanted to go back to one other point, too. Um, uh, you know, the whole question of the United States containing China um, and, and the submarines, you know, I think that it's worth for the audience to know, uh, as Professor Mahoney said, that, you know, China has built up this huge naval base in Hainan, and that's where their submarines come out. Um, and those submarines are monitored carefully 
by the United States. Um, and that's part of the con potential confrontation, but that's where I think the Americans would feel that if they don't try and limit or at least know where the Chinese are going, the Chinese will be able to come out into the South China Sea and even get into the Indian Ocean, which is what I think makes India somewhat interested. And, and India is quite hawkish. I mean, the Indian military is quite hawkish on China, always has been in the intelligence services have been quite hawkish. So I think that there's probably, you know, within India, there'd be a tension between the diplomats and diplomacy um, and, and the military. And I think the military would be much more hawkish. Okay, well, uh, thanks very much. Are we going to say anything about Canada? Well, yeah, because uh, we, we expect the uh, the verdict today. I think, well, there's some suggestion that the verdict might be might be coming out today. Y yeah, David Zweig, um, you, you have a personal connection, do you, with the with the trial? You well, I, Michael 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 Coburn is a good friend of mine. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, I wrote something in the South China Morning Post and took an unpopular position and said, <laughs> just let let them, you know, make a deal. You know, um, uh, because I thought that uh, uh, the, the Canadians got pulled in to uh, arresting Miss Mung, um, uh, though I think she's probably guilty of some of the things that she was accused of. But in, in truth, uh, lots of countries have done, or lots of companies have done what Huawei did, uh, which is uh, find some subsidiary to carry on some kind of business. Um, HSBC did it. And you pay a big fine. But, 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 you don't but, go and yeah. I mean, it's not too late, is it? But I mean, you don't go and arrest. You don't. Yeah. But I'm just don't saying. Go and arrest the... Okay, go ahead. I'm just saying that, you know, um, people quite often can be released from uh, jail in China due to ill health and sent back to their home countries. That's. Sure. Well, that's what everybody knows. I, I, I think it has happened. Yeah, Mahoney. Dr. Mahoney. Professor Mahoney. Yeah, I think, go ahead. I think it's a, you know, I think. I think there's one aspect to it, and, and uh, I think by having the trial and reaching a verdict, um, and, and we don't yet know what the verdict is going to be, it actually it, it could I actually allow. <laughs> <a lot of laughs> move I think we do. I think we do. Not guilty. Well, well, Not maybe guilty. we. Maybe I mean I don't know what it is, but uh, I mean I, I've, I've dealt with the Chinese legal system. Uh, things aren't. They, they don't always come out the way you think they're going to. But nevertheless. Uh, I think that we were going to have to reach issues. a conclusion. Hmm. I, I think we were going to have to reach a conclusion one way or the other, because so much has been invested in this. There's been there's been so many accusations of, of hostage diplomacy and other things that um, that they were going to have to have a ruling. They weren't just going to be able to release someone. I think um, because of the way the rule of law is supposed to work now in China. So I, I think that reaching some sort of legal conclusion. Even if it's negative, then provides the opportunity for some sort of, you know, um, um, action on behalf of the president to exchange or, you know, a grand bargain uh, with Ms. Munger or whoever. Okay, well, maybe we'll return to that topic uh, uh, later when we, when we do know the, the verdict. For, for the moment, uh, Gregory Mahoney, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Joseph Gregory Mahoney, Professor of Politics at uh, East China Normal University, and David Zweig, uh, uh, Emeritus Professor at uh, UST and uh, Director of Transnational China Consulting Limited. Um, 
Jim says on the uh, meeting, that meeting was a fishing expedition by the new Biden administration. There is no human rights for black citizens in America. I say that I am a black American born in 1941. I lived through Jim Crow, segregation and blatant racism. Biden and his Department of State are out at sea on this subject. That's uh, from uh, Jimmy, who also says the US did not lose China. If that were true, Nixon would not have normalised relations with the PRC in 1978. And uh, Jim says on sea lanes access, America does not lock down international shipping lanes. And G says, is it right, important, though the relationship between China and the US is, to ignore the impact of China's predatory fishing fleets in Southeast Asia and as far away as South America? An international solution brokered through the big powers should be promoted through UN agencies. And much more important, the continuing slaughter of innocents in Syria could be discussed by China and US with a view to jointly promoting a solution. We need to change the paradigm of big power relationships for the good of all nations. Nations mean nothing without people. That is uh, from G. G, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And John Calhoun says, uh, says uh, sorry, Jay says, John Calhoun has a good point about honkies moving to the UK. It's not cheap for a family of four to live in the UK if you want to qualify. Thank you very much indeed. For those, the weather mainly cloudy, cool with a couple of light rain patches this morning and temperatures up to about 20 degrees during the day. 16 degrees, latest readings, relative humidity 65%. No matter how fit we are, it is important to get vaccinated to prevent COVID-19. All along, we have received different vaccines to prevent infections. Vaccines will help create antibodies and memory in our immune system. When we come into contact with viruses in future, our immune system will quickly resist them. It is the simplest and most effective method to protect ourselves and others. Let's get vaccinated. 934, the news now with Samantha Butler. An infectious disease expert says Hong Kong could remove its anti-epidemic measures once it achieves herd immunity to the coronavirus. University of Hong Kong professor Benjamin Cowling said this would need about 70% of the population being inoculated with what he called a highly effective vaccine. So far, more than 350,000 people have received their first COVID vaccine dose.